Good morning. Can you guys hear me okay? Good. I think you, I can hear myself okay. So, um, really good to be with you all. Like Ryan said, I've been at UConn. I'm in my eighth year, and so it's good to see some UConn people that I recognize. And I was here, I think, in June last, and uh, so great to see some of you again that I met in June. And uh, like Ryan said, I work with this ministry called RUF at UConn, and we meet on Wednesday nights at UConn. I've been doing that for a while, and RUF has had somewhat of a connection to this church since I arrived around eight years ago. Uh, so it's neat; it's been neat to kind of follow this church and uh, to always kind of be connected through some students that are involved here. So. Really good to be with you. This morning, the text I've chosen is Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 14. So I'll just go ahead and read that for us. I mean, Ephesians 1, I should say, 1 through 14. Uh, This is Paul, the Apostle Paul, writing uh, to the church in Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us, for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Let me pray again. Uh, Heavenly Father, as we come now to your word, uh, we come from many different places. Some of us come from a place of belief, and some of us may come from a place of unbelief. Uh, Some of us come from a place of encouragement and others from a place of discouragement. We pray that you would meet us where we are, in your word. Apply it to our hearts this morning and make us different, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, Ephesians, this letter that we just read the beginning of, is a letter to a church about how they need to be unified. The point of the letter is that they need to be one. They need to love each other. They need to submit to authority in all its forms so that they can be a unified church, right? So the big goal is like, like the reason Paul is writing this letter is you guys need to be one. You need to be united. You need to love each other. And the interesting thing about Ephesians 
is that it's six chapters, and if you were to just read chapters one through three, you wouldn't find one command about how you need to be unified or love each other. There's zero commands in the first three chapters. Chapters four through six kind of get into like, this is how you need to live, and here's how it's important to love each other in this way, but chapters one through three are all about grace. Uh, Before he says one word about how these people need to change, he spends three chapters going into great detail about all the things that God has freely given his people in Jesus Christ. And that's actually a pattern in the Bible as a whole. A lot of people, when they think about the Bible, think like, oh, it's all these rules I need to follow. But really, if you read the Bible, what you'll see is there's never rules in the Bible without grace first, even as far back as the Ten Commandments. Uh, God doesn't just lay out the commandments and then say, obey so that you can be my people, but he says, actually, I am your God who brought you out of Egypt. Like, you're already my people. Now this is how you should live. And in this passage that we just read, Paul's talking about news that is so good that it actually has the power to change us at our core so that we might be different. And later in the letter, he'll talk about community and loving one another and being united and all these different real changes we need to make in the ways we live. But here at the beginning of this letter, Paul cannot contain himself, actually, as he talks about the grace that's revealed to us in Christ. And the reason we know that is because what I read was basically one sentence. Like, it was written in Greek originally, and verses 3 through 14 are one long, babbling, run-on sentence. And to translate it into English, we actually have to, like, divide it up into sentences to make sense of it. But Paul is just spewing grace uncontrollably in this passage. Theologians call it the waterfall of grace, because it just keeps coming and coming and coming. It's like Paul is saying, okay, at the beginning of this letter, if you're going to get one thing, please get this. And what he covers is actually four aspects of what God has accomplished through Jesus on behalf of Christians. And so that we're going to look at those four aspects this morning of what Paul, Paul can't stop going off about these things. And they are predestination, adoption, redemption, and finally an inheritance. Uh, so what I, I just want to look at those four, and the first is predestination, and I'll just acknowledge off the top that this is kind of a polarizing topic for Christians, and that there's many great Christians on both sides of this issue, so I don't want to, my goal here today isn't to like start an argument or anything like that. Uh, I come from a reform perspective, which I thinks of predestination as God's predestination of saving individuals, and uh, some come from an Arminian perspective, which is more along the lines of God predestining, predestinating a plan of salvation that He would save. And uh, I don't. You might be thinking, "All right, I'm already bored by this discussion," which is fine. Uh, but I want to suggest here's why predestination is exciting whatever side of that issue you fall on, and we could talk more after the service about this if you want, but here's why it's exciting. God's love for you predates anything you ever did to endear yourself to him. I'll say that one more time. 
God's love for you predates anything you ever did to endear yourself to him. Uh, Before time, God said, I'm going to, like, Lucas is going to be mine, not because he's lovely. He's not lovely, but I can make him lovely. And what you need to see is this is the most secure love that there is because it's not based on anything but love itself. Uh, You can't lose it because you didn't do anything to get it in the first place. Uh, God essentially says, I love you because I love you. And there's no greater love than that. Uh, My wife Maggie and my kids, I think they're downstairs now. Uh, Asher was kind of hanging out in the aisle a little bit during worship. And uh, our kids are one and four. And we have this book that we love to read to them uh, called Just Because You're Mine. And in the book... It's about a father squirrel and his son, a baby kid squirrel. And in the book, the kid squirrel is like showing off to his dad on each page. And he's like jumping from tree to tree. And he's like, did you see that? And the, the father squirrel keeps on saying, yeah, you're amazing at jumping from tree to tree. But that's not why I love you. And then he like combs his hair on the next page. And he's like, aren't I so handsome? And the dad says, you are so handsome. But that's not why I love you. And he spins around in circles really fast. And he's like, did you see that? And the dad's like, yeah, you're amazing at spinning, but that's not why I love you. And it goes on and on. And at the end, he says, that's not why I love you. I love you just because you're mine. And we want our kids to know that about our love. And we need to know that God's love is like that. Like, we need a love like that. The part, part of what makes relationships scary is because most relationships are not rooted in that kind of love. In most relationships, we say, I love you because you're funny. I love you because you're pretty. I love you because you're fun. I love you because you're interesting. And what you need to see is there's no security in a love like that, right? You're not going to be pretty forever. You know, what if you're not funny anymore? What if you're not interesting anymore? What if you're not useful anymore? That love vanishes. And even if you, you could be in the greatest marriage, but there are things you can still do that will make your spouse leave you. And what this passage is saying is that God's love is not like that. In the Bible, God extends his love to those who whore after other gods. He loves you because he loves you. It's inexplicable. It's the greatest love that there is. And I just want to ask you, do you have anything else like that? Is there anything in your life that is giving you that? And the love in this passage actually gets deeper than that because it says what God predestined us for specifically, which is adoption. Uh, It says he predestined us for adoption for adoption through Jesus Christ. And it's worth just thinking about adoption for a second and what it is, right? Some of you may have adoption in your story somewhere. Uh, Adopted children have no blood relation to their parents, but they are declared to be the parents of that child. Or the child of that parent. Adopted children enjoy the same rights as biological children. They're legally declared to be the same. And what an amazing picture of what it means to be in relationship with God. What Paul's saying here is that if you're a Christian, you've been brought into the best father-child relationship that there is, and you actually belong there. 
It's not like sneaking in. It's been declared that you belong in this relationship. I have a good friend, uh, him and his wife, uh, when they were dating, his wife had, from a young age, heard that she would not be able to have biological kids. Something uh, in her body was wrong, and she, they, they got married knowing they wouldn't be able to have kids. Uh, but the thing is, they did have kids, uh, and they were surprised. They had three biological kids, and, uh, but because they had already kind of committed to adopting kids long before they were ever married, they said, well, we have three biological kids, let's adopt three. And so one by one, they adopted children from places like Uganda and China, and now I get their Christmas card every year. There's like a new kid in every Christmas card. <laughs> and it's so beautiful because now there's six kids in it. And they all look really different from each other. But they're all like wearing the same matching outfit. Or they're all like in the same theme. They're, part, they're clearly part of the family. And you can see that the love that the biological children get is the same. It's extended to kids from Uganda and China. And this passage says that we are adopted through Jesus Christ. And what that means is that the love that Jesus deserves in being the eternal son of God is now yours. It's extended through Christians who don't deserve it at all. You know, we don't look anything like him. Uh, if you're a Christian, it means you're not a foster child. You've been adopted, and your status is actually the same as Jesus himself, even if you don't look like him yet, even if, even if your life doesn't look like his yet, and it's real, and it's permanent. Uh, if God the Father were to send out a Christmas card, it would be Jesus in the middle, with all, in all his glory, surrounded by raggedy old us, yet enveloped in the glory cloud. And you might be thinking, okay, that's a nice thought. That's a nice, like, sentimental thought. I, if I believe in Jesus, I can be adopted. But I want you to think about the practical uh, difference this will make in how you live. Uh, think about the thing in your life that you know you need to change. Or the thing you're tired of trying to change because you've tried so many times and you always feel like a failure. Uh, the reason change is so hard for us is because we feel the pressure of, like, this time is the last time. I'm turning a new leaf today, this week. This year is going to be different. And anything less is going to be failure. And I want to suggest to you that if you approach change that way, you're actually living more like a slave than a child. Uh, this was written in the Roman, during the Roman Empire, and in Roman culture, there were two kinds of people in a household. There were slaves and children. And a lot of times, slaves actually were, could be so good that they were eventually adopted. And, but slaves and children did similar work around the house. But the difference was why they worked. If you were a slave, you did the work or else. You changed or else. If you were a child, you did the work because you were a child. You had status you could not lose, and so you worked uh, because you belonged to the family, because the family business was ultimately your business. Think about what that's saying about what God is doing in the world. He's saying, I'm bringing you in. 
My business is now your business. You represent me now. And you will only be able to live the life that God wants you to live if you know that you belong. You'll only be able to change the way that you misuse relationships or misuse food or money or success or alcohol or sex or whatever it is if you know that God considers you to be his beloved child. And we all need to change, right? Change is so important. We're all so messed up. We need to be different but not so that God will love us. We already have his love in Christ. That's what Jesus' death and resurrection do for us. That's adoption. So predestination, adoption, and now redemption. In verse 7 it says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. Uh, Redemption is a word that means deliverance by payment of a price. Uh, To be redeemed means to be bought back. Now it's worth asking, why did we need to be bought back? And in the church, we talk a lot about how Jesus died to pay the price for our sin, right? St. Paul talks a lot about that, I think. And we talk a lot about how there's a cosmic cost to sin. We talk about how forgiveness always costs Something, And in our case, the penalty from tur- for turning away from God, for spurning him, is for God to say, fine, go, see what it's like without me. But on the cross, God lets go of his own son. He experiences the wrath of an eternal damnation apart from God so that God can hold rebels and sinners like us close. Uh, He pays the price by dying in our place. But there's also another sense in which we need to be bought back. Because at the time that Paul wrote this, redemption was a word that was associated with the freeing of a slave. And what Paul is saying is that our problem isn't just that we're guilty, although that is a massive problem, Our problem is that when we turn away from God and turn toward anything else to save us, when we turn toward anything else for our reason for living, whatever that is now owns us. If we need to be bought back, it means we must have belonged to something else. Uh, We typically turn away from God because we want to be free. We want to be unrestricted. But what Paul is saying is that if you turn away from God, something else will get you. It will grab you. It will own you. You will be enslaved by that thing. And many of us are Christians here. And so what that means is we've been redeemed, but we often fail to live in that reality, uh, that we've been set free from uh, our old pattern of living. Uh, The house we've lived in now, we've lived in for the whole time we've lived here, so seven and a half years or so, and when I moved into the house, I uh, immediately noticed that we, our kitchen faucet, it's one of those simple faucets, you know, it's just like a handle and you up and down. And uh, whenever you put it down, theoretically turning it off, uh, it would actually drip. And so there was this one sweet spot, though. If you go a little up and to the left, after you go down, it would like find the sweet spot where it stopped 
dripping. Some of you are familiar with this phenomenon. And, uh, and so that's what we did for years and years. And a couple of years ago, a friend of mine was like, I could fix that. Like, <laughs> I could give you a new faucet. It would take me like half an hour. <laughs> and I was like, great, like, please do it. And so we got this same fa simple faucet and it worked the way it was supposed to work now. You put it down and it went off. But the thing was, for about, it took us about six months to break the habit of going up and to the left. And so it was work, like we'd go down, up and to the left, and be like, oh yeah, down. So it was longer than before. Okay? Um, the vestiges of the old life of slavery are hard to shake. I want to ask you, as you think about your life, what is up and to the left for you? In other words, what is it that you, you're, you've been set free from this thing, but you go back to it. You go back to the old slave way instead of the old son and daughter way. And I want you to just think, what might be some signs that something owns you or that you're enslaved? Uh, I'll just give you a few examples. Uh, if you find yourself doing something you told yourself you'd never do again, or if your pursuit of things like success and status and comfort and perfection drive you to feel anxious and out of control. If you can't sleep anymore, or if all you want to do is sleep. Uh, if you frequently pursue escapist and numbing behavior. Or if you're always comparing yourself to whoever is around you. Uh, I, I work with college students on the UConn campus and talk about these things with students uh, quite frequently. And one of the things I tell them, I try to tell them, is that there's nothing you do that doesn't make sense. So when I hear a student say, like, yeah, I just, like, you know, I just stay up really late. Or, you know, I just, like, there's this thing I do. Like, there's nothing you do that doesn't make sense. You know, maybe you work too hard and you never rest and nothing's ever good enough. And there's a reason for that, like you're serving a false god. Or maybe you waste time all day because you're tired of that enslavement and so you avoid. Or maybe you're afraid of failure or rejection, uh, so you just procrastinate forever, right? If that's you, there's only one truth that can set you free, and it's the gospel of grace. It's that Jesus came as a redeemer to buy back those who had turned on God and become enslaved. And the price was his own life. Jesus knows what you're like and he's not ashamed of you. He comes with no demands except to be his. And only that truth can set you free. So that's redemption. So predestination, adoption, redemption, and finally, an inheritance. And this passage, is, it's interesting because it talks about receiving an inheritance from God in two ways. In verse 11, it says, we have obtained an inheritance. And in verse 14, he says, until we acquire possession of it. And like many times in the Bible, it's like, which is it? It's both. Uh, I'm a sh one, of, one of the TV shows I watch is Shark Tank. Anybody a Shark Tank fan here? A few Shark Tank fans? Uh, I, I just love it. I don't know why. Um, it's really good. Um, 
And recently, I don't know if you guys saw this, but there was a couple from Newington, Connecticut on the show. And their invention, so I don't, if you don't know the show, people come out and pitch their business to these wealthy investors called the Sharks and, and attempts to get help with their business. And the Sharks are trying to make good investments. And so there's a lot of negotiation and stuff that happens. And uh, so this couple had this invention called the Moki Doorstep. And the Moki Doorstep uh, it was a simple invention. It's just this little like platform, but it hooks into that little striker on the ins when you open your car door. There's a little striker on every single car. They're required to have them, and this thing hooks on, and it becomes this step that's about yay high that you can step up onto, and it makes means anyone, no matter how tall you are, can like hook things up on the roof of your car. Really simple, and, and they were asking for $150,000 for 5% of their company. And all the sharks were blown away. They were just like, that is actually a really great idea. I can't believe anyone, no one has ever thought of that before. And uh, so they're kind of haggling a little bit, making offers. And Damon John, one of the sharks, just goes, you know what? 150000 for 5%. So you're valuing your business at $3 million. So I'll just give you $3 million for the whole business. And they're like, yes, yes, we'll take it. And, uh, and so they, take, they, they shake hands with Damon, and they're just like, they can't believe it. And as they're, they're getting ready to walk out, and Mark Cuban, one of the other sharks, says, he says, hey, how does it feel to be a millionaire? And the woman's just like, I don't know. <laughs> that moment is, that's what it's like to be a Christian. That's what this is saying about an inheritance, right? Is she a millionaire in that moment? Yes and no. The deal is done. They shook with Damon, but she's not actually holding the check yet. But I bet when she goes out to dinner that night, she's like not worried about the prices on the menu. Right? That's us. Right? We, if we know the end of our story, you know, if we know that our inheritance is like everything good that God ever had to give, that's ours. If we know that that's the end of our story now, then we'll be able to approach all of life today differently. Uh, it, our inheritance is in Christ. And what that means is that the end of our story is really just the beginning of a new story in which all the goodness of God just becomes ours and everything bad about the world becomes untrue. And the assurance comes as God reminds us by his spirit, as the passage says again and again, this actually happened. It's finished. Jesus did die. He did rise again. He is seated at the throne, on the throne of heaven. It happened in history. And what Paul is saying is that for those who hope in Christ, there's a joy in the midst of sadness. Because in the end, all that belongs to God will belong to us. That includes the privilege of just laying your tired head in his arms. Okay, if you're not a Christian today, it's awesome that you're here. Does a love like that sound good to you? If it does, you need to know it's free. The thing you need to know about it, the only qualification you need to have is to need it. If you are a Christian today, stop living like you were on the verge of losing God's love. 
Stop managing your life so that you can avoid depending on the blood of Jesus to save you. Because what happens with Christians is that we mess up really badly, right? Like we did, did something we never, we, we said we'd never do that again, or we just like lashed out at our loved ones, or we have this secret thing in our life that we like can't get rid of, and we feel guilty about it because it's like, I'm a Christian, I should know better, like what's wrong with me? And so our solution is like, I'm just going to, God probably wants a break from me right now, so I'm going I'm to stop going to church for a while. I'm going di- like, to dis- self-impose a punishment on myself. In other words, I'm going to start acting like a slave again. And the message of this passage is God doesn't relate to his people that way at all. His relationship with us is rooted in grace. Uh, grace is often defined as God's unmerited favor. You may have heard that definition before. It's a fine definition, but... It's really like, it's not just unmerited favor, it's that we merited the opposite. Biblical grace is not someone walking up to you and giving you a new car. Biblical grace is like, you punch someone in the face and they respond by giving you a new car. Grace is only for people that were enemies of God. Right? We didn't do anything to earn it, in fact, we did the opposite. We earned God's Wrath, and what that means is there is nothing you can do to lose God's grace once you have it. It's all about grace. Uh, If you were to translate verse 6 literally, it would just say God has graced us with his grace. Verse 8 says he has lavished grace on us. It means he wants you near him in all your filth. And he will see to it that you change. He will see to it that you become clean. But if you live like a slave instead of a child, you will not experience that. Okay, how do we know this is all true? How do we know it's not a fairy tale? It's not just like something to get you through the week. We know it's true because of the work that Jesus did in Paul who is writing this letter. Do you know about Paul? Paul was the worst. He was so self-righteous. He was a racist. Not to mention that, I don't know, he hated the church and hunted Christians. What horrible thing have you done lately that you think disqualifies you from the grace of God? I promise you, it's not worse than what Paul did. So what did God do with Paul? Did he say, all right, Saul, this is your last chance. Get your act together. No. He said, rise and be baptized. Wash away your sins, calling on his name. See what happened? Paul met Jesus in grace. Then he was adopted and redeemed. His life was changed, and now he can't contain himself as he talks about grace. And even as he writes this letter, which is from prison, by the way, because for the cause of Christ, he can't stop thinking about building up a church transformed by grace. He can't think about that, stop thinking about that grace extending out into the world, extending deeper into our hearts. And you know what starts to fall away when your life is transformed like that? Selfishness, 
pettiness, laziness, arrogance, pride, anger, impatience, greed, sinful habits. Why do they fall away? Because you have to change or else? No. Because all those bad things cannot exist in the presence of grace. They're crowded out by the goodness of life in submission to the Redeemer who has set his love on you for all eternity, even though he knew you would wander and he knew it would cost him everything. Let's let this grace transform us today. Be kind, be different today because God's grace has taken root in your heart. Let me pray for us again. Heavenly Father, we, uh, there's so much in us that is twisted and messed up and uh, not the way it's supposed to be. And You see it so much more clearly than even we do. And so we are so grateful for grace. Uh, we pray that grace would not be an idea today, but it would be our life today, that we would be transformed by it, uh, that we would have an impact here in this region of Connecticut uh, as a people transformed by grace, that we might extend it out uh, as your body of believers. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.